So I feel like, you know, we're going to be looking at human beings and our implicit biases. We're going to be looking at companies, organizations and society. And so it's also important that we look at the future and where are we going uh, as human beings? How are we evolving? How is society and technology evolving around us and with us? And how are we able to keep up with that? My name is Paul Strimling. I study cultural change, how norms change over time. But right now I'm spending quite a lot of time studying AI and how AI will impact society in the near future. And something that I get is a big part of your work is uh, cultural evolution. Could you tell us a little bit about what that entails? Yeah, so that's, it sounds scarier than it is. It's yeah. mostly at history as the struggle between forces and trying to see why certain things are selected. And what are some of the insights we're gaining? I, I guess it's a field that's evolving in itself a lot, but using maybe an, an example um, to give us a view of this work. So, so in my case, I have recorded what is the inherent difference between, say, views on homosexuality and views on abortion that has made it such that during the last 50 years, views on homosexuality has shifted radically, yeah. whereas views on abortion hasn't shifted much. And not just those two questions, but for a wide host of moral opinions, we can see that this is connected to what type of arguments you can make for the different opinions. All right. The types of arguments form like an evolutionary pressure for one to win out over the other. And I'm guessing that ties into then the ability to communicate these arguments. And that has changed a lot since the internet and the social media. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Ties directly into that. And just, it, it, I mean, we start with social media, but even before then, uh, free speech has oh, yeah. made a big difference for how they spread. And we can see that in countries where you don't have free speech, we don't get the same spread. Mm. And then, of course, adding internet and so makes it possible. Well, it, it can go two ways, right? It makes it possible for you to communicate only with people that already have your opinion. Yes. In which case, there is no change. Yeah. But it also makes it possible for you to communicate to lots of so we're, we're speaking about like the development of technology and how we interact with this, each other. One really dominant factor in, in um, our internet behavior or technology in large moving forward is AI, which is a big part of what you do. You have a AI blog as well, uh, besides doing uh, all this research. And I'm really interested in how these subtle or, or more active uh, behaviors are sh being shaped and might be accelerated through the development of AI and how that might affect us long-term. AI development has made huge progress during the last five years. And AI can today do things that it was nowhere close to doing five years. And we're trying to determine how this will affect us once it gets fully released in society. By fully released, I mean, if you think about the internet, uh, if we took away the internet right now, we would have a hard time functioning. Yes. Right? We, we wouldn't know how to do our jobs. Yes. Banking, uh, everything. 
everything like that. Yeah. AI technology will probably be immersed to the same level, so we'll have a hard time knowing what to do without it, yeah. but we're not there yet. So we're trying to determine what will happen once we're there, when we're in a society that is as dependent on AI as we are right now on the internet. There's no real evidence that AI is good at determining what I would call social choice mm-hmm. uh, or long-term social choices. So we might create an AI that's pretty good at knowing what the next YouTube movie you want to watch is. Oh, yes. But we have no AIs that can determine uh, how well are you going to do, like what kind of job do you, would you do well or uh, where are you likely to live in the future? These kinds of questions that we're trying, the government needs to decide upon. Oh, yeah. And is trying to, or a lot of a lot of cases are creating AI to determine, but we don't know that AI is good. And do you believe we will reach a stage where AI will be sufficient enough to make these types of decisions? Uh, so me personally, I don't think so. No, I think, uh, I mean, no. Let me be more specific. Deep learning the current technology within AI. Yes. I don't think it can do this. It might be possible that no way I can do this as well. That's an even stronger claim. Uh, and it has to do with how random our lives are, how unpredictable our oh, lives are yeah. uh, in a fundamental way. So, so definitely not deep, deep learning, and I doubt that we'll see another AI that can do it. I mean, to be fair, on the other side, people are not very good at this exactly. either. Yes. <laughs> so we're not good at determining who we should hire or who should get extra help and so on. So AI might not be worse, but it's possibly not better either. So with this being implemented already in a lot of services, how much control do we have over how it's implemented and what are some of the risks that we could see with the implementation and what are really um, the, the pitfalls that we're looking need to look out for? Yeah, so we have no control whatsoever. It's a very special thing here. Um, usually, when there's a new product, people have a consumer choice yeah. if they get that product or not. Oh, yes. And that's not how this AI has spread. Uh, my app or YouTube updates without me really knowing what's entailed in that update. So I got that AI implemented in my phone without asking for it, without making a choice, without controlling it, really. Yes. And, and that becomes extra interesting if we look at different cultures, because what we're really talking about is a very small group of people in uh, large corporations making decisions that affect people globally. But I think a first step, if we want to go in this direction, would be to force companies to disclose what their AIs are optimizing. What is the goal function of these AIs? Like, in the same way that we make people who sell food tell us what are the ingredients. Yes. We should tell, they should tell us what are they optimizing so that we can choose. Is this recommendation system, has it optimized something that I think is 
valuable for me. You have to optimize something that's just valuable for the company. That really ties together with this episode, uh, speaking about our implicit biases and how so much of this happens on a subconscious level. You could say mm-hmm. AI is also happening behind a veil or behind a, on a subconscious level. So uh, a lot of the solutions we're hearing is bringing stuff from the subconscious, understanding how, let's say, our neurons work and th- that type of wiring is similar to understanding the wiring behind the AI and being able to make informed decisions as well. No, I think that's, I think that's right. It's, it's, if you want to link the, this difference between AI and more classical computing really is that we, we let these algorithms create the subconsciousness or they create the, uh, an associative cogni- uh, cogni- uh, connection that we haven't given them explicitly and that we don't know, they don't know the rules for. Oh, yeah. In very much the same way that uh, our implicit biases are associations that we haven't, that we might not be aware of the rules of or, or how those rules were made in ourselves. They're not explicit. I mean, they're implicit, uh, but they're the same kind of association effect. Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee. I am a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution here in the United States. And I am the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution as well, where we focus on legislative, regulatory, domestic, international policies that are basically guiding the new tech space. In these conversations, we're exploring implicit biases from different angles. So for this episode, we're focused on the technological aspect of this question. But to start off, before we dive into everything we need to be aware of, I would like to understand what is it we're searching for on the positive side? So what are the possibilities of AI? Well, you know, AI is actually one of those spaces that I think You know, it is going to encompass our wildest imagination. When I was a little girl, I used to run home to watch this cartoon called The Jetsons. And in The Jetsons, it was a guy by the name of George, his wife and his two kids, right? And what they used to do is have all these holograms and fly in outer space and have drones sort of, you know, circulate around, you know, where they were going to eat, pick up the food, bring it back. And that was when I was a little girl and without dating myself nor giving my age, because that's not what we do as women, <laughs> uh, particularly black women, right? What I would like to suggest is that we're living in that digital age right now. And that digital age has been so transformative that it's actually, you know, again, beyond our wildest imagination, allowed us to live, learn, earn, love, care for ourselves all through some type of online connection. And that online connection, which turned out to be very static in the beginning when we started with just email, for example, has turned into a connection that now emboldens us to um, receive back from the computer uh, things like recommendations for movies or positioning of purchases that we make or positioning of ads that we may see. It makes determinations around our health predictions in terms of the likelihood to get uh, some type of disease. And these are, I think, the areas of emerging technology and the area of artificial intelligence that are going to be so promising because it's going to help us solve issues that we've never thought that we could do as humans. Mm. The cognitive retention and processing of a computer compared to 
you know, the slower analytically paced human being is going to be one that is going to be immeasurable going forward. And so I think as we sit in this space of emerging technologies that is going to essentially provide things like precision medicine, where you can be in different locations and be operated on with a precision of a, a surgical tech precision that is unheard of, or you can have your face in terms of facial recognition technologies detect the probability or likelihood of chronic disease. Oh, yeah. That is going to be something that I think, you know, in, in areas of climate change, let me also say, right, in terms of drone technology and surveillance technologies that help us make predictions around the state of the environment, those are going to be game changers. And they're going to be game changers as we add additional uh, devices that are enabled through artificial uh, AR and augmented reality and virtual reality on top of that, we'll be able to see things in our lifetimes that I think many of us would have never thought would have come to fruition um, in, in the way that it has. If I grow up in an environment that is pretty insulated from poverty, you can rest assured that I would not design products that have any type of sensitivity towards the impoverished state. If I grow up as a person who is not of color, or of uh, any other racial or ethnic persuasion, you rest assured, you could be rest assured that I may not design the AI in a sense that it is sensitive to the experiences of cultural groups. And that's something that I think is so interesting and which is why myself as a sociologist is in this space. It's not so much that we're making the argument that all AI is racist or sexist or you know just always embedded with biases, but we are kind of making that argument on the third point, right? Because the AI in and of itself, computers aren't discriminatory from the onset. They learn those behaviors from the person who has the pen in terms of what they're actually scripting for the arc of that technology. And so what we have seen in terms of public cases, for example, is that we have seen for uh, algorithms that are meant for search queries that have people put in keywords like uh, happy teenagers and mm -hmm. deliver back as results white teenagers smiling and black teenagers with mugshots. We have seen searches for primates deliver back faces of Africans and African-Americans as gorillas. We have seen photoshopping apps that take brown skin and full and robust uh, uh, characteristics of your face and slender them down. And then you have to ask yourself, these are sort of innocuous, you know, they are not necessarily discriminating against you, but what happens when that same model or a different model that has been sort of designed and executed by someone who has very limited sensitivity or understanding of things like unconscious bias, yes. that it determines whether or not you get accepted or rejected for a loan, or it determines whether or not you are more likely to be uh, seen in a lineup for a criminal offense, or it determines whether or not you will or will not, this is a, a recent example, be selected to be an IB diploma recipient <laughs> simply because the algorithm did not take into account the, the, again, the fallibility of the environment in which it is actually being deployed. And so I always tell people, as a sociologist, it's important as we develop these models to understand that our implicit and explicit biases factor into the development of those models and the adaptation of any type of machine learning algorithm or artificial intelligence system that may start in a lab and eventually land up in a context of, you know, of, of real life yeah. is like a snake.
on the beach at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> where at a certain point it picks up all the granulars, uh, 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 sand, granular sand of who we are and what we represent on our online experience. So what are some of the best ways you've seen so far people safeguarding for this? And what would you hope for in the future? Well, Love I think we definitely... Yeah, I mean, we definitely have to bring more sociologists to the table. (laughs) I think we need more interdisciplinary approaches when we come to algorithmic design, evaluation and execution. It's really important. I mean, I'm a sociologist, but we're pretty much trained that someone's zip code will tell you a lot about the neighborhood in which they live just by knowing what their zip code is. Right. Someone's name may have something to do that. I mean, I'm Nicole Lee. Oftentimes people think I'm Asian because of the last name Lee. But if you throw in my maiden name of Turner, some people might think, you know, I'm from the South. The key thing is, is that we have these uh, artificial proxies that are already deployed in the world, which we have a lot of data about that tell us the extent to which they actually exclude people from certain opportunities. So, for example, the name thing may sound funny. But it really, for a period of time in the city of Chicago, there was a study that said based on your name, on your resume, it excluded you from actually being interviewed for a job. So now take that to the incident. And now not only could someone see your name, but they could also see your profile picture on your social media platforms. So we're up against, you know, a bigger animal, I think, that has the ability to sort of relitigate the type of civil rights and human rights justices that we've already settled for. And so what do you do? I mean, first, you have to compile an interdisciplinary team to help you be informed about those types of decisions and to integrate the type of ethics and and privacy frameworks that I think are going to be very important in deploying responsible AI. And they will promote inclusivity in the design phase so that you can avert some of the challenges that I've discussed previous. I think, secondly, it's important to understand that the data that we're working from on the internet is just not that great when it comes to weighting the type of opportunities that you're speaking of as well with a particular population. So, for example, it's easy as a person who works for a tech company to say, I got to be the first one to get this to market. I don't care if this is not necessarily representative. I don't care if we're basically using European faces to, to do Photoshopping. I've got to beat company X before they actually go to market first. Well, as a researcher, that's not necessarily good because what happens is you don't have enough variables. You don't have enough people. Your training data is essentially flawed. So what does that mean on criminal justice algorithms? It means that when you're doing facial recognition technologies and you're highly dependent upon mugshot data, the people that you are more likely to find are black men and women who then become sort of the uh, baseline for the type of facial recognition products that you're going to put out. That makes it a fallible system, you see what I mean? And so working through that training data is equally important to understanding and framing the question. And then third, I would say, being really clear about where is this result being deployed? So financial services, employment, education, criminal justice, healthcare, those are the areas that we as individuals care about Yes. Those are the spaces that are private to us, but they have longer term consequences if we're denied. And so I think it's really important that what we do about it, too, is to think through what are those spaces that I need more help in? That I want to get this right. 
And in getting it right, I may not be equipped based on my own personal biases, values, assumptions, norms to actually render a decision that will be equitable to the subjects that are going to be using this technology. And then there also might be the case where you have to be transparent. I'm working right now on a model. I'll be having an event in a couple of weeks on October 1st at Brookings yeah. on, you know, the extent to which you're transparent as to what your model can do and what it cannot do. Mm. So with facial recognition technologies, it's been reported that black people with darker skins are not recognizable by the technology at this point. And black women in particular who changed their hair last week, it was straight. Tomorrow might be braided. I'm still trying to anticipate if I have enough time to get my hair braided. (laughs) Means that when I try to use facial recognition, it's not going to recognize me. But instead of a company disclosing that to me, I have to figure out, well, I guess I can't buy that product. Or I guess, you know, I'm not the right subject. Oh, yes. Think about what that looks like for groups that have been historically oppressed to be oppressed and to be excluded systemically from this new technology that has shown us that they has no barriers. And so I think, you know, we have to get to a state where we have best practices on the technical side. We understand the feedback that comes from consumers in terms of where there are blind spots. And honestly, I think third, that we understand in our respective countries where we cannot break the law when it comes to civil and human rights. And so we should not be developing responsible AI that in turn actually allows certain populations to be surveilled more or to be denied, um, as you mentioned so well, denied the opportunity to benefit from a program, a place, or be discriminated against because we've already had those battles. Oh, yeah. We don't want to have those battles again just because the technology has basically enabled the bad actors to come in and to exploit the condition of humans. Thank you so much for giving us uh, real tangible points to talk about. You're really putting a lot of important questions to light. And I'm very excited for your book to come out. And I really hope I'll take you up on that offer of coming back on the show. Yes, please have me. And thank you so much. Now, for those of you who don't know it, just about a minute ago, I was in, you know, my workout clothes. I did it my day. <laughs> and only for learnability when I actually get dressed up and put on something presentable after he told me how many wonderful people across this world this podcast was going to reach. So thank you again for having me. I'm so glad that it worked out and I'm so sorry that it is so late where you are at, but I appreciate the conversation. coming to 12 p.m. here and I thought I would be very tired, but you gave me a lot of energy. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)